Hi everyone, welcome to the first ever episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast that will take you on a journey through the history of Scandinavia, from the end of the last ice age right up to today. My name's Michael Schenkman, and I'm a historian with a PhD from Lund University in Sweden. For the purposes of this podcast, Scandinavia refers to the area covered by the five modern countries of Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden. I know that this is far from an uncontroversial definition, and that geography buffs out there will object that only Denmark, Norway, and Sweden are really part of Scandinavia. Some purists might even insist that the only real Scandinavian countries are Norway and Sweden. Of course, from a strict geographical point of view, there is some merit to this argument. But this is a history podcast, and for the lion's share of the last millennium, Scandinavia was politically dominated by two kingdoms, Denmark and Sweden. Norway and Iceland were controlled by Denmark, and Finland was a part of Sweden. So, it would make no sense to exclude these countries from the narrative. With that out of the way, let's dive in. Episode 1. In the beginning, there was ice. The title of today's episode is actually a bit of a misnomer. For the truth is that the history of Scandinavia doesn't really begin until the ice starts to disappear at the end of the last ice age, some 12,000 years ago. By that time, Scandinavia had been covered by an ice sheet 2,000 to 3,500 meters thick for at least 80,000 years, maybe as much as 100,000. Obviously, it takes a while to recover from that kind of thing, and for the first millennia after the ice started to melt, the climate in Scandinavia was similar to northern Siberia of today. Reindeer, mountain foxes and polar bears roamed the land. But with time, temperatures rose and trees started to spread northward. With the new forests came moose, deer, beavers, as well as a host of other animals that we know and love from the contemporary Scandinavian fauna. Even though the flora and fauna would have looked familiar to modern-day Scandinavians, the land itself was strikingly different. First of all, much of today's seawater was bound up in the ice, so there was a land bridge connecting modern-day Denmark and Sweden, effectively making what we know as the Baltic Sea into a giant freshwater lake. That barrier wasn't broken until some 7,000 years ago, when the seawater started to stream in into the Baltic Basin. Furthermore, during the Ice Age, the weight of the thousands of meters of ice that had covered Scandinavia at the time had pushed the land down. Now, when the ice was gone, the so-called post-glacial rebound started, and the land began to rise again. In fact, the process hasn't ended yet, and in the northernmost parts of the Baltic Sea, the Gulf of Botnia, the land is still rising by almost one centimeter per year. The first time the locals noted this phenomenon was during the Enlightenment era in the 18th century, when the Scandinavians took their first baby steps toward rationalism and scientific thinking. But instead of realizing that the land was rising, they assumed that the sea was actually receding. This worried them greatly, and they feared that somehow creation had cracked and water was seeping out at the bottom. Within the enlightened scientific community of Scandinavia, it was therefore a widely held belief that one day the world would dry up completely. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, some 10,000 years in fact. But don't worry, 
We'll get back to Linnaeus, Celsius and all those other Enlightenment-era scientists with their pretentious Latinized last names in a future episode. Anyway, based on archaeological finds, it seems that the first humans arrived in Scandinavia some 11,000 years ago. At that time, it was still a pretty bleak place, and the first inhabitants were hunters and gatherers following the reindeer northward as the ice cap receded. Over the following centuries, people settled along the Scandinavian coastlines. Zealand and southwestern Scania, the two shores of the Ursin Strait, made up the most densely populated area. Further north, the plains of central Sweden, as well as the river valleys further north than that, were also populated. So were southwestern Finland and the vast archipelago in the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Finland. But the parts further north of that, and further inland, as well as the moors of Jutland, had few permanent inhabitants. The one exception was the Sami population. They probably lived in most of Scandinavia, at least modern-day Sweden and Finland, but were gradually pushed north by immigration from the continent. Today, their culture and traditional way of life survives only in the far north. We'll have occasion to return to them in future episodes. Some 6,000 years ago, the early Scandinavians joined the Neolithic, or Agrarian Revolution, arguably the most important event in the history of mankind. This was the stage when people went from being hunters and gatherers and started to cultivate the land instead. The arable land in Scandinavia is mostly found in Denmark and in southern and central Sweden. In Norway, a mountainous and rainy place, the southeastern corner is one of the few regions really suited for agriculture. The first preferred method of farming in Scandinavia was so-called slash-and-burn agriculture. This technique doesn't demand fancy sophisticated tools, but only hard, back-breaking physical labor. It works like this. You cut down trees in the forest to create an arable field. Then you set fire to all those trees you just cut down, and the soil is fertilized by the ashes. Slash-and-burn fields are typically used by a family until the soil is exhausted, which happens after only a few seasons of planting and harvesting. At this point, the family moves on and prepares a new field. The previous field is abandoned and trees and shrubs are permitted to return. After a few decades, the land is recovered and can be used again, by the same family or by a different one. In slash and burn agricultural societies, you typically don't own a plot of land. Instead, your right to the land is connected to your working it. Also, there were only semi-permanent living arrangements and you typically move from field to field. This would also weaken potential links to any particular plot of land. Since there are no written sources left from this early period, we know very little about daily life in Scandinavia at the time. We do know, however, that some 5,000 years ago, a new type of tool starts to show up in the ar archaeological finds. It's uh, some kind of axe, and consequently, the people who used it are called the battle-axe culture. But despite the name, we don't really know that these axes were used in battle. In fact, judging by their design, they seem to have been more or less useless for any kind of practical purposes. They might, in fact, have been nothing but status symbols. This so-called battle-axe culture replaced the previous culture and spread throughout southern Norway, Sweden and Finland. In the early days of Scandinavian archaeology, scholars assumed that this was the time when the Indo-Europeans invaded Scandinavia and replaced the previous population. Obviously, there is not a single piece of evidence to back this up, 
since there are no linguistic remains from this period. Also, contemporary archaeologists point out that the cultural influences and the adoption of new tools and techniques can spread without large migrations and the replacement of whole populations. And that does make a lot of sense. I mean, claiming that a new kind of axe is an indication of a new people settling in Scandinavia would be like archaeologists in the future teaching their students that in the year 2007, the old population in Scandinavia was replaced by the iPhone people. A new tribe from North America invaded and brought with it a new and superior communication device with a large screen that enabled its users to share memes and view silly cat videos. The members of the iPhone culture soon replaced the old cell phone culture, and to this day we have no idea where the indigenous Nokia tribe went. The next big step in the development of Scandinavian culture came with the introduction of bronze some 3,700 years ago, kicking off the Bronze Age. Since bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, and tin wasn't to be found in Scandinavia, the very existence of this metal is proof of international connections. Tin was important from the continent, most notably from England, and the Scandinavians paid for it with furs, amber and slaves. With this new material, bronze, the Scandinavians produced all kinds of objects, such as jewelry and weapons. Or at least some of them did. During the Bronze Age, we see a clear stratification of Scandinavian society, with the vast majority of the people probably continuing to work and hunt with tools made of stone, wood and bone, but where a small elite minority could obtain new and fancy weapons, tools and jewelry made out of bronze. A relatively large number of these bronze objects are still around, because Bronze Age Scandinavians preferred to bury their dead, at least their rich dead, in sumptuous graves filled with grave goods, presumably needed in the afterlife or at least testifying to the status of the diseased. Some of these finds include elaborate bronze helmets with horns. Yes, you heard me correctly. Helmets with horns. If you don't believe me, feel free to visit the National Museum in Copenhagen and gawk at the Vixo helmets. But just to clarify, these were not helmets worn in battle, but only used for ceremonial purposes. And in any case, they seem to have gone out of fashion hundreds of years before the Viking Age set in. So don't worry, the no-horn helmet Viking is still the rigueur. Through these objects, as well as rock carvings, we get a glimpse of Bronze Age Scandinavia. Plowing with oxen, riding in horse-drawn carriages and travelling by sea in ships driven by oars. Archaeologists can also tell us that the climate was significantly warmer back then. It was so warm, in fact, that grapes grew as far north as central Sweden, and people seemed to have been happy wearing only skirts and flimsy loincloths. All in all, the Scandinavian Bronze Age seemed to have been a glorious time of aristocracy, wealth and great weather. But alas, nothing lasts forever. About 2600 years ago, the climate changed again. It grew colder and wetter until the weather resembled what it's like in Scandinavia today. This climate change led to poverty, starvation and shrinking populations, as well as a new fashion. People discarded the loincloths and started to wear pants. Most of the more exotic plants and crops, like grapes, couldn't survive in the new Scandinavian climate. People had to be content with the crops that endured, most notably rye, by most standards a poor substitute. 
and dark, dense forests of spruce and pine trees started to spread across the land until they completely dominated central, eastern and northern Scandinavia, pretty much like they still do today. To make matters worse, international trade was disrupted and the supply of tin from England dried up. To compensate, people started to produce tools and weapons from a locally sourced metal instead, iron, consequently starting the Iron Age. All in all, this wasn't the best of time to live in Scandinavia. Even the elites suffered. The large houses and monumental tombs of earlier years were replaced by humbler homes and smaller graves, usually containing nothing but ashes instead of whole bodies and lavish gifts. What this new style of burial signifies in terms of altered religious outlooks, if any at all, is something we can only speculate about. We know relatively little about the early Iron Age in Scandinavia. What we do know is that people started to use manure to offset the effect of worsening agricultural conditions. They stopped the slash and burn practice of previous generations, except in the north and eastern Finland, where the practice endured. As a consequence, people also stopped moving. People started to stay on their plot of land permanently. So permanently, in fact, that plenty of the present-day towns and villages in Scandinavia have been inhabited since the Iron Age. Slowly, the elites recovered and inequality returned. The rich once again start to build the monumental graves for themselves and archaeological evidence shows us uh, that in every village, one farm tended to be larger and richer than the others. Over time, the larger houses developed into great halls where chieftains resided. These chieftains seem to have been a combination of religious, military and political leaders and they also controlled trade. This last aspect was important because about 2000 years ago, Scandinavia yet again became a part of the European trade network and especially made contact with the ascendant new superpower, Rome. Romans bought Scandinavian furs and amber, but also blonde hair to use in wigs for Roman ladies. Apparently, they paid well for the blonde hair because vast quantities of Roman silver coins have been found in Scandinavia. From this time, we also have the oldest surviving written references to Scandinavia. As early as 2300 years ago, in the days of Alexander the Great, a man called Pythias from the Greek settlement of Massilia, present-day Marseille in France, travelled to Britain. There, the locals told him about a land he called Thule, situated even further north than the already pretty exotic British Isles. According to what the Britons reported, it rained more or less constantly in Thule, and the weather was so cold that the water around its shores froze in the winter. In order to keep their spirits up, the people of Thule drank heavily, but not wine since no grapes could grow there. All of this fascinated Pythias, and when he returned home, he wrote a book describing all he'd seen and heard. Unfortunately for Pythias, his description of Thule was met with skepticism and hurt his reputation as a trustworthy source of information. For instance, the geographer Strabo, who lived two centuries later, only mentioned Pythias's tale of Thule in order to dismiss his account as unreliable. But with growing trade connections, more information filtered down to the Mediterranean civilization about the peoples of the north. In his book Naturalis Historia from the first century, Pliny the Elder described the island of Scandia, north of Britain, and in the year 98 the historian Tacitus wrote a book about the Germans, and in it he described the Sveans, possibly the Swedes, living north of Britannia. 
Their ships didn't have sails, so they had to row using loose oars. But on the other hand, they uh, could move just as quickly backwards as forwards. Tacitus never ventured that far north himself, but still he reported with certainty that beyond the land of the Sveons, there was nothing, only the hard, frozen, solid, impassable sea until the end of the earth. But if you did come close enough to the edge, Tacitus claimed, you could hear the roar when the sun rose in the morning, and you could see her horses drawing her carriage. A few hundred years later, in the middle of the 6th century, a Byzantine bureaucrat of Gothic origin called Jordanes uh, wrote a history of the Goths called the Origini Actibusque Guitarum, on the origins and deeds of the Goths, or the Getica for short. The purpose of the book was to provide the Goths, who had just achieved power in the ancient world and were perceived as upstarts by the weakened but still relentlessly snobbish Romans, with a glorious past. Jordanes described the topographical features of southern Scandinavia, which he was convinced was an island called Scanza. There the weather was so cold that the wolves could walk on the frozen sea in the winter, and the summers were too cold for honey-making bees. He called Scandinavia the womb of nations, and rattled off a long list of more or less fictitious tribes that he claimed stemmed from this remote island in the north, including the Goths, obviously. According to Jordanes, on their way south from Scandinavia, the Goths were the ones who sacked Troy. Then, they went on to wage war against uh, an Egyptian pharaoh called Vesosis. Needless to say, according to Jordanes, the Goths won a glorious victory and pursued the Egyptians all the way back to Egypt. Earlier generations of Scandinavian historians loved the Getica. Jordanes may have intended to boost the reputation of the Goths, but by extension, he had also provided the medieval and early modern Scandinavians suffering from an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis continental Europe with a glorious and ancient history, including the conquest of Rome itself. These Scandinavians also tried very hard to combine the many names of tribes mentioned by Jordanes with various re regions in Scandinavia. Modern-day scholars are skeptical. Another Byzantine author who lived during the 6th century was Procopius of Caesarea. He served as the secretary to the illustrious general Belisarius, who defeated the Vandals in Africa and the Ostrogoths in Italy. Procopius was also the prime historian of his time. He wrote flatteringly about the Emperor Justinian and General Belisarius in The Wars of Justinian, and in this book he also described the island Thule. Just like Jordanes, Procopius believed Scandinavia to be an island. He claimed to have travelled there himself, but clearly not far enough north to realise that it wasn't an island after all. Like all the other authors based around the Mediterranean Sea, Procopius mentioned the exotic and mind-boggling fact that the sea itself froze in the winter. He also touched briefly on the local religion and claimed that the Scandinavians practised human sacrifices. Procopius also mentioned the Sami, or as he called them, Skrithifinnoi, or skiing Finns. He described them as a distinct people traveling over snow on their skis, subsiding not in agriculture, but hunting in the swamps and eating bird's eggs. He also made sure to relay the shocking news that the Skrithifinoi did not drink wine. This is pretty much all we know about Scandinavians prior to the 10th century. They were a curiosity just off the margins of civilization. 
Continental Europeans saw little reason to waste time thinking about them. But that was soon to change. Big time. In the next episode, the rest of Europe will be introduced to the Scandinavians when the Vikings come knocking. And soon enough, pretty much everyone on the continent will be talking about them. I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>